0: to worship with you and uh, to bring the word uh, this morning. I say thank you, but I know you probably didn't have anything to do with it, so uh, on behalf, I'm thanking you on behalf of your pastors who did have something to do with it. And I'm really thankful for them. I especially know Justin and have known him for a while. And thankful for his friendship in the gospel. You have good pastors who are pointing you to Christ. Uh, just love them, pray for them, trust them uh, as they lead you in the ways of Christ. Um, Justin asked me if I would come and preach a message on kind of the Christian and race, the Christian and racial harmony or racial reconciliation. And he asked me to do this, um, not because I'm an expert, but because I've been thinking a lot about the issue. So if that qualifies me to preach on it, I don't know. I'm just, uh, as, as John Piper has said, I'm just a pastor doing the best that I can. Uh, Just going to the Word again and again, trying to find what the implications are for our lives. Um, And so I'd like to bring you a message this morning from Galatians chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, I told Justin and Merle also that I don't really like preaching after having driven for a couple hours because I'm basically rewriting my sermon in my head. Uh, and so I pray that the Spirit would... I, I came up with some good thoughts on the way, too. So I don't know if they're going to be included in the sermon or not. So I just pray the Spirit would bring to mind what He wants me uh, to speak, um, and that He would keep me from saying anything that is contrary to His Word. Um, basically, what I want to do this morning is um, preach to you the main point of Galatians three, twenty-three to 29 and then give you some implications from that about Christians and race, about how we ought to think about these sorts of issues. Because the main point of those verses three twenty-three 23 to 29, is not uh, racial harmony, but I think that it is very uh, vitally linked to the gospel itself, as we'll see in this, this scripture. You probably uh, are somewhat familiar with the book of Galatians, why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. I love that we we, we read about justification from the confession of faith, because that's all about what Paul is writing about. We are justified freely by God's grace. We receive it through faith alone, not by works of the law, so that none of us can boast. The Galatians had turned away from this gospel of grace that Pro- Paul preached to them. It seems like it may have been fairly quickly, too. He preaches the gospel to them, and they, they turn away from this gospel of grace. We see that in, uh, he says that in verse 6 of chapter 2, Galatians 2, 6. Uh, from those who seem to be influ- influential, oh, excuse me, that's not the right one. Let's try 1, 6. I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you, into the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Now he says it's a different gospel, but really he means it's no gospel at all. To, to say that you are justified by faith in Jesus, but also by works of the law, is to have a completely false gospel. Is to do away with the gospel. It's to turn away from the true gospel of grace. And so these uh, we've called them Judaizers before. These Judaizers had come in uh, were attempting to undermine Paul's authority over the Galatians and his preaching of the gospel. Yes, they were saying it is by faith in Jesus Christ, but you have to also do these other things. You have to uh, go through ritual circumcision, just like the Jews had to do. You have to uh, uphold certain dietary restrictions and laws. You have to obey the law of Moses. You have to do these things. Yes, you must trust in Jesus to be saved, but you have to do these other things as well. And Paul rightly saw that as a complete overthrow of the Gospel. So Paul is writing to correct these things. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the great Reformation proclamation. It's not by works of the law, because faith in Christ plus something else equals no true gospel at all. Galatians 2 verse 16, we see this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Do you see that? How often he's repeating that? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is what Paul is getting at in this letter to the Galatians. And then in chapter 3, he continues defending the true gospel that he had proclaimed from the beginning, and he makes certain arguments That it is by faith, it's not by works of the law. He says, How did you receive the Spirit in the first place? Did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith or by works of the law? And of course, they received the Spirit through faith. To rely on the law, in fact, is actually to become cursed, he says. You see that in uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 13. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. And verse 13 gives us our hope. It's not through the law, but Christ redeemed us from the curse curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He goes on to um, argue in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 that the promise that was made to Abraham is not uh, annulled. It is not broken because of what came later, the law through Moses. The, The prior promise to Abraham that it comes through faith, that you, you, through you all the nations will be blessed, you will receive a land, you will receive an offspring. This promise, this covenant to Abraham is not annulled by the, follow, the law, which comes later. Now, if you're there in chapter 3, let's read the passage we'll, we'll be giving thought to this morning. Verse 23-29. to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we consider your word and the implications that it has for us along the issues of ethnicity and racial reconciliation, that you would work in our hearts to understand your word, to understand what it means for our lives, that we would give you praise and glory with our voices, with our speech, with our behavior, with our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now Paul is making an argument here at the beginning of these verses and just a few verses earlier that the law is not bad in itself. The law is not um, a bad thing. It just has specific purposes. It has a specific purpose. Now, this law was being, this use of the law, this purpose of the law was being abused by the Judaizers. They were saying, you must do these things in order to be justified, in order to be saved. But the law was never meant to give life, it was never meant to give life to sinners. We see that in verses 21 to 24. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. You see, in verse 21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law is not bad. It's not contrary to the promises of God. It just has a specific purpose which was being abused by the Judaizers. You see, the law does not give life. It it imprisons. It kills. It, you see the words in our passage. Uh, it held us captive. We were imprisoned by it until the coming of faith. It was our guardian. Uh, in verse 23 and following, we see the law in redemptive history and in our pers- personal lives. We see what the law's purpose is throughout the grand scheme of things, throughout history. The law is to kill, to captive, to bring under captive, to imprison, and as a guardian. Ultimately, the purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. Now, the use of what he's talking about there, the law was a, a guardian. It was... Uh, perhaps some sort of slave who served as kind of a, a guardian, a, a one who gave watch care over a, a young son, who would guide him to where he needed to go, who would discipline if he didn't do what he was supposed to do, who would keep him in line and teach him. And ultimately what Paul is saying here is that this, the law functioned in this way for us, that the law functions for this, in this way for everyone, that the law cannot give life, it only imprisons us. Did you notice that about yourself when you came to faith? When you came to Christ, that that is what drove you to Christ? When we come into contact with the law, when we come to see what the law really tells us, we know that we can't keep it. We know that we are imprisoned. The law functions as a mirror to us, which is not bad if we are perfectly pure and clean. But if we come to the law, the law of God's word, the perfect mirror of our souls and truly see in it, we will see that we are full of sin, that we are full of dirtiness and spiritual impurity. The law does this for us. It shows us that we we are dirty, that we need to be cleaned. But none of us take the law and start washing our faces with it, right? That's not the purpose of a mirror. It simply shows us a reflection. It shows us who we are. And that's what God's law does for us. It shows us who we are. It could never give us life. It could never make us clean. But it drives us to Christ. Who who will clean me? Who will will wash away this filth? Who will wash away the dirtiness of sin in my life? It drives us to Christ. Christ. Verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law was a guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified. There's that word that we read earlier, that we might be justified by faith. We are justified not by works of the law, but by simply receiving Jesus' work for us. The law drives us to Christ, and now that faith has come, that's a, that's a parallel with Christ coming, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Instead, we are sons. You see that in verse 26. That word for points back to the previous verses. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That's why you're no longer under a guardian. In Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. And then you see another uh, four in verse 27. For, points back to the previous verses, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So you have been baptized into Christ. When you were baptized, when you became a believer, you were immersed into the waters. And you were raised up to new life. You were uh, immersed into Christ you were put into Christ and now you have put on Christ that's the the image that Paul has there for us you are in Christ you have been baptized into him you have been immersed into him and you have put him on that's a a beautiful picture of The imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is how we are justified. Not by our own goodness, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness and goodness of Christ who the law did not hold Him captive. He was perfect. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. And He took our unclean robe of unrighteousness and put it on Himself. And He gives us through faith, His perfect robe of righteousness. This is the image Paul has for us. We've been baptized into Christ and we have put Him on. We, the, the main point here in these verses and in, in much of Galatians, we have been justified by faith in Jesus. We have not only been justified in Him, there, all the promises are justified. Through faith. We have been justified, united to Christ, put in Christ, into Christ. We have been adopted into His family through faith and not through works of the law. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, and when united to Him in faith, all those promises belong to us as well through our union with Christ, through our faith in Him. Now before we get to the implications for uh, ethnic distinctions, for racial harmony, I just want to ask, are you relying on works of the law to get you right with God? Or are you relying on Jesus and His work for you? Has there ever come a point in your life where you came to your senses and you said, there's nothing I can do, there's no good I could do where I could come into a right relationship with God. There's nothing I could do God, what do I do? I need a Savior. Trust in Christ. Rely not on your own works to get closer to God, to make Him more pleased with you. rely upon Christ. Turn your eyes, instead of inward, turn them outward to Christ who died for you. And trust in Him. Now these verses, especially verse 28, as I'm sure you can see, have huge implications for us in the way that we relate to one another and those around us. The Bible has huge implications for how we treat other people, especially those who are different from us, those that we have challenges relating to. And so I want to take the rest of our time and give you four implications from this passage about our relationships with others who are different from us. Four, implications on cultural and ethnic distinctions or racial harmony. Now, as I was uh, traveling into town, we went through Wilson and we saw a sign, a billboard for a church that said, um, laundry is the only thing that should be separated by color. And for some of you guys, you might have to ask your wives about that. I didn't Maybe I didn't know that as well as I should have from personal experience. Maybe uh, it'll help you if you say, see, I like to, I like to divide my Skittles by color. Okay? But the, I think the, the billboard makes a good point to us, though, about what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that in Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, there's no longer any division. Especially along... Uh, cultural, ethnic, color divides. There should not be any division. I did some a little bit of research just on the area that we're in. Uh, I didn't know that, but and I'm, I did. I forgot to ask somebody how I pronounce. Do I pronounce it Cooper's Township? Is that right? Huh? Coopers? Not not quite Coopers then. Coopers. Okay. I, I did some research on that, and I found. Just some kind of uh, demographic numbers that 89% of Cooper's Township is classified as white Caucasian. 5% is African American. So that's, that's a big divide from here to Rocky Mountain. So if you live here, you may be wondering, so what, what application does this have for me? Here in this town where it is primarily white Uh, People that make up the township. How many of you, uh, just raise your hand if you uh, live somewhere other than Cooper's Township. Raise your hand. Really high. So, maybe more than half, a little bit more than half. Uh, How many of you work outside of Cooper's Township? Raise your hand. Or do your shopping outside? Yeah, I mean, all of us. At some point or another, we'll, we'll interact in different uh, towns and cities. And so let me give you some other stats that I found. In Nashville, you might spend some time in Nashville, uh, the, the population demographic is 55% white Caucasian, 43% African American. In Wilson, you might spend some time in Wilson, it's 47% both white and African American. And in Rocky Mount, it is 32% white Caucasian and 61% African American. Now you can see those are, those are some huge differences. So if you spend any amount of time in Rocky Mount or Wilson or Nashville, any time outside of kind of Cooper's Township, you will be in contact with a variety of different people. Uh, Russell Moore, who is the head of the Ethics and Religious uh, Liberty uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention said recently that uh, if in 20 years the Southern Baptist Convention is not doing their annual conferences in both a- English and in Spanish, then it's because we're dead. Now, I think he might be overstating his case a little bit, but it does make the good point that just the, the national landscape is changing in that uh, in just a few years, uh, white Caucasians are going to be a... What's called a minority majority. There's a growing, especially the Hispanic population, is growing tremendously, uh, as well as uh, other ethnicities, and white Caucasian is the only one that's shrinking. And so, more and more, we will find ourselves in a multicultural world. It's just the way that things are going to be more and more. So, why talk about this issue? Why address this issue? The first uh, answer to that question is because the scripture does. The Bible, we, we have to, if we are going to be faithful to the whole counsel of God, then we must take note of what the Bible says about it. And the second is our own personal lives and, and dealing with people and who are we are relating to in Christ. So, with all that said, here's the first uh, implication on cultural and ethnic distinctions. First, as believers as believers in Christ, as those who have come to faith in Jesus, in Christness, that's that's a word I'm coining, in Christness is our supreme identifying characteristic. Our in Christness, the fact that we are in Christ, the fact that we are believers in Christ, this is our our first distinctive. This is our supreme identifying characteristic. We are all sons of, of Christ. And that includes you women, too. Don't think I'm exclu- excluding you. You are sons of Christ. You're not excluded from that, just like us men aren't excluded when we say we are the bride of Christ. All right? These are images to convey something about our new relationship with Jesus. We are all sons of God in Christ. We have been adopted into his family through faith. And the sons receive the inheritance. We get all the privileges of natural-born sons in Christ. Now what this means that we are all sons, all those who are in faith, all those who are Christians are sons of God. What this means for us is that we have more in common with sons than non-sons. We have more in common with sons than non-sons. So think about those maybe in your own family. Those who are close friends with you. You might like the same kind of music. You might like to do the same kind of things. You dress the same. You look the same. All these things. But if they are not a Christian, if they are not a son of God through faith in Christ, you are a lot more like sons who seem absolutely different from you who dress totally different from you, who like totally different kinds of music, who, do, who behave in somewhat uh, totally different cultural ways, you are more like sons than non-sons. So you are, like, you are more like someone who is a Christian in Africa than perhaps your close friend who is not a believer. And if you've been overseas, you've noticed this, this closeness that we are able to identify with other believers even when we cross over the ocean. Justin and I experienced it in Romania. Just the the friendships that we had with other believers. and We didn't know each other when we first got there, but we met and we continued to talk and we resonated with one another because of our in-Christness, because we both had been baptized into Christ. We both had put on Christ and because of that, We were much more like them than many in our own family. So that's our first implication, that as believers, this, our in-Christness is supreme above any other identifying characteristic. But our second implication is this, our earthly, cultural, ethnic, and gender characteristics are not erased in the gospel. Our, our cultural, ethnic, and gender characteristics are not erased in the Gospel. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, that says just the opposite of what you said, doesn't it? Well, no, it doesn't. What Paul is speaking of here is that these, these things, and we'll get to this point in a minute, these things no longer serve as uh, dividing points for us. They no longer serve as a means of spiritual privilege for us between us and God, or a way that we can separate from one another. But these things are not erased in the Gospel. Now, how, how can we know this? How can we know that these things are not erased in the Gospel? Well, we can begin with the male or female. There is no male and female. Do you think that it's taken literalistically, that's what Paul means, that they're no, more, no longer male or female. No, that's not what he means. Uh, of course, we know that in the rest of Scriptures, we find that there are different roles assigned to men and women. That we are created as equal, equally valuable before God, and yet God has gifted each one of us in certain ways for different roles. God has gifted men and assigned them a certain authority that He has not assigned to women. There are different roles between men and women. So we can start there, beginning with male and female, and then apply this to the rest of those things. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Social class is not erased. Some are still rich in the church and some are still poor. Hopefully we will provide for one another's means, but this doesn't completely erase the social aspects of our lives. And in addition, ethnic and cultural backgrounds are not erased in the Gospel. In fact, not only are they not erased, these diverse characteristics still exist for a purpose, for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Male and female exist for the glory of God. The different roles assigned to each exist for the glory of God. Imagine yourself if you were in a huge field with, with acres and acres of flowers, but they were all monochrome, they were all just kind of a gray color, and there were no differences either in the leaves. Let's say they were, they were, they were all just that grayscale color, would that be a beautiful sight? It might be, it would probably be neat to see, because it's, it would be so different, but that is not how God has made the flowers. God has made the flowers not just different colors. He makes them different colors. But He makes them different shapes, different sizes, different varieties. Why does He do this? Why does He display this this creativity, this diversity? It's for His glory. That it would redound to His honor, His majesty, His creativity. And I think the same thing is meant for the way He has created people. Different shapes and sizes, different colors, different appearances, different cultures. He has done this so that His glory would be maximized in an amazing way. Than if we were all the same. He has done this for His glory. Therefore, we it won't do simply to say that when it comes to racial issues, we are simply colorblind. It won't do. Now that's better than racist, right? That's better than seeing the colors and being prejudiced against one or another. But it is not the highest good. It is not the best. The best is that we would see all the colors of the rainbow, that we would see the variety and the beauty of God's diversity and just explode in in joyous praise to God for His amazing creativity. Our earthly, cultural, ethnic, and gender characteristics are not erased in the Gospel. Rather, they serve to give glory to God. Our third implication is this, though. These distinctions, although they're not erased, these distinctions no longer serve as spiritual advantages between God and man, or as barriers to fellowship with one another. These distinctions no longer serve as spiritual advantages between us and God and as barriers between one another. Paul's meaning here and his aim here in verse, uh, the end of verse 28 is unity. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are one just like he talks about in Ephesians 2:11 through19, that God would make this new man between Jews and Gentiles, which would be reconciled with God and with one another, bringing them together. So this is true. We know, we know intellectually that this is true in the universal sense. Right? We know that all men and women are accepted by God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That there is reconciliation between God and man because of Christ. But what about in the practical sense? What about on the ground level? What about in the local, on the local level? Well, we see an example of this if you turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 11-14. through 14. <clears throat> Paul was accepted by the apostles But, verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He, Peter was making distinctions based on his Jewish superiority. All the, the gifts and the privileges that God had given to the Jews throughout history, he, saw, he still saw this. Uh, he, he knew he shouldn't, but he was acting hypocritically. He saw this as... A spiritual privilege for him, that he was better than these Gentiles. Paul says, You're acting like a Gentile. What does he mean by that? He means you're making these distinctions when God has torn down these distinctions. He has torn down these barriers, and you are erecting barriers in the place of that barrier which has already been torn down. Paul confronts Peter to his face because what does he say? Because his behavior was not in line with the gospel. It was not not in accordance with the truth of the Gospel. And we should ask ourselves the question, why, why would God bring down walls if He didn't intend for us to cross over them? To have fellowship between one another in the body of Christ. Why would He bring down the walls if He didn't intend for us to have true relationship with one another? Just like He tore down the the wall between us and Himself, that we might be reconciled, not just so that we would know intellectually that we're reconciled, but so that we would actually spiritually in relationship be reconciled with Him and experience the joy of that relationship. It's the same way with our horizontal relationships. I think to begin making progress in the area, we we need to take a cue from Paul and be willing to confront one another when our lives are out of step with the gospel. Not only on this issue, but on other issues as well. When our behavior, when our speech, when those things that we do don't match up with what the gospel says, with what the good news, we need to call each other out on a variety of different issues. Now on this issue, it might be more difficult because we, in some sense of the word, are products of our culture. And so it may take offending someone like Paul here did for Peter. Your speech is not in line with the Gospel. And I've, I've been in situations where I've heard a racist joke. And I didn't say anything. Or I've heard someone say something. It happened to me just uh, several months ago. I was at a used bookstore and someone said something. And I knew that that, they had already told me they were a Christian. I knew that did not jibe with the gospel. And I didn't say anything for about 10 minutes until I got so convicted I had to speak up and say something. I don't, inwardly, just by sinful natural self, I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation, and so I don't even like speaking up on issues like this. But Paul gives us the example here. And I think this is a way forward for us. That we, uh, those who speak in racist terms or in prejudiced terms, we call them out on it. Lovingly, gently, this is not in step with the Gospel. God has broken down these barriers. He wants us to be One. We also ought to consider what barriers are we putting up? What barriers are, are we putting up in the place that one got, one's God has torn down? What barriers perhaps are already up that we had no part in ourselves, but we haven't torn down yet? What barriers are there, are there for our fellowship with those who are different from us? Again, this has a lot to do not just with racial and ethnic distinction, but also social class, with cultural divisions, And our fourth implication is this. Uh, Being God's sons, we are all heirs of the promise to Abraham. We are all heirs of the promise of Abraham. We are all sons of God through faith. We are all heirs of the promise to Abraham. What promise is this? You could pick a number of them. Um, The promised spirit Paul talks about here. There was a promise of land to Abraham. This land will be yours, and we see from the book of Hebrews that uh, Abraham saw this not simply as a physical fulfillment, a physical land, but there was a a greater promise, there was a greater uh, fulfillment in eternity. A city not built by human hands, but built by God. The promise through you, Abraham, all nations of the world, all nations, the, the word there is ethne, all nations will be blessed through you. And this promise, this promise to Abraham is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. All nations are blessed through the coming, the work, the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners, regardless of their ethnicity or skin color or cultural background. Jesus, this is fulfilled in his death on the cross for sinners like you and me, and in his resurrection from the dead. And this promise reaches its its ultimate culmination, its perfect physical fulfillment as we see in the kingdom of God in Revelation 7-9. Do you know what it says in Revelation 7-9? John is repeating his vision and he says this, After this I looked, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This this is where the promise that all the nations will be blessed through Christ finds its ultimate physical, visible fulfillment. We see those from every language, tribe, people, and nation worshiping before the throne of God. And it appears that John saw the differences. He saw that they were people from every ethnicity and tongue and tribe. And this, it seems to me, has two, motivates us in two ways. One way that it motivates us is in the area of missions. Right? There cannot be ethnic pride. And at the same time, go and proclaim the gospel to nations far and wide. Because this is a part of God's purpose. And God's purposes, as, they, as we see them in heaven, should inform our pursuits here on this earth. This purpose that all the nations, that some from every tribe, people, and nation will be worshiping before the throne informs us we ought to be pursuing those nations with the gospel. And it also informs us we ought to be pursuing reconciliation with those around us in our own towns, in our own workplaces, in our own churches. And some might say, yeah, but it'll never happen here on earth. God is sovereign over these things. He is. He is in control. God is sovereign over these things. It'll never happen here on this earth. But what if we took that approach to all the other things in the Christian life? What if we took that approach to sanctification? Okay, I'm never going to be perfect here on this earth. Therefore, that's something I don't need to pursue. I know on the end, in the end with, in heaven I will be complete. I will be without sin. So does that mean I don't need to pursue it now? Of course not. The scripture tells us we ought to pursue that. Christ-likeness. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or with missions. God is sovereign over those things. God is sovereign over those who hear the gospel message. So does that mean we we need not pursue proclaiming the gospel to those around the world? Absolutely not. And in the same way, in the same way, it doesn't keep us from pursuing reconciliation here and now. And praying, Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it doesn't keep us from living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have a unique responsibility and privilege in America that many other countries don't have. Many other countries just have one ethnicity. You know, they don't—they don't have even an option of reconciling between the races because there's only one ethnicity there. We have a great privilege of showing what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of what it looks like, of of a, a picture here on earth, of what it will be like in the heavenly realm, where everyone, all types of people, like all the many types of flowers, will be standing before the throne, worshiping Him with one voice for His praise and glory. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would break down any sin, sinful thoughts in our hearts. Father, this is an area I would dare say that every single one of us, myself included, struggle with. We were raised in certain ways to think in certain ways that we didn't realize were out of line with your gospel. So we pray that in your goodness, you would reveal those to us, that you would hold up the the perfect mirror of our souls, the perfect law, and show us who we are. But in doing so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us not simply to reflect inwardly, but that we would look outwardly to the one who died, who paid our penalty in full for every sin, past, present, and future. Let us look to Him who died on the cross for our sins, who became a curse for us so that we could be sons of God and receive your inheritance of eternal life. And Father, teach us. Give us wisdom so that we would know how to walk in line with your gospel so that we wouldn't imitate Peter in this aspect, but that we would imitate Paul. At first we would reflect on our own lives, and then we would also let it work itself out outwardly in our own relationships, that we would lovingly confront one another, so that we might be restored, so that your people might truly be one as Jesus our Savior prayed, that we would be one. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to stand now. For